We continue today in our sermon series, Pay Attention, a study of the letter to the Hebrews. Today, our passage is Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 19. So if you have your Bible in front of you or need to take a moment to find one, I'd encourage you to have in front of you Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 19. We come at this point in the letter to the Hebrews to a bit of a turning point, a hinge in the letter to the Hebrews. The next four chapters will begin a section of so what? You know, every good sermon has a, a bit of a so what to it. If this is all true, then what do we do? And this sermon, written to the Hebrews, as is this letter, is no different Having taught us all about Jesus as our high priest and Jesus as our sacrifice, the mediator of a new covenant, all that we've been learning in this study to the Hebrews, we come now to chapter 10, verse 19. And the question is, if all of this is true, if he is the priest and the offering who has absorbed the consequences of sin unto himself, if this is really what he's done for us, how should we live? What's an appropriate response to this reality? And so in chapter 10 here, we're moving from who Jesus is to what we ought to be doing about it. Edward Jenner is a name you may be familiar with. He was a British doctor in the late 1700s. At the age of 14, he was apprenticed to a local surgeon and trained in London. But he was more of a country folk, if you will, and so he was familiar with the old folklore of the countryside as a doctor, that milkmaids who suffered the disease of cowpox had a unique experience in their life. Cowpox is that disease that was formed on the udders of cows, blisters that were transferred to the hands of milkmaids. Rumor had it that these milkmaids experiencing cowpox never contracted smallpox. Smallpox was one of the greatest killers of that period, causing blisters and dangerous fevers, especially among children. Jenner was chasing down the idea that one who had contracted cowpox, a much milder disease that had almost no severe consequences, could become protected against smallpox. So Jenner began his experiment he carried out his famous experiment on eight-year-old James Phipps. He took the fluid from a cowpox blister and inserted it into an incision in the boy's arm, effectively giving him cowpox on purpose. Can you imagine someone getting permission for this kind of medical trial today on an eight-year-old boy? But after he was cured from his cowpox, Jenner followed up the experiment by giving him smallpox only to find that his hypothesis, the folklore, was true. That the cowpox disease had developed an immunity within them for the smallpox disease. Jenner would go on to submit a paper to the Royal Society in 1797 describing his experiment. Of course, the idea was met with some hesitation at first. He was told his ideas were too revolutionary, that he needed more proof. And so he began to experiment on several other children, even his own 11-month-old son. And so by 1798, the results were finally published. Jenner had coined the word vaccine from the Latin word vaca for cow. 
Now it's easy to look back and think that this must have been a revolutionary huge step that so many accepted, but as you know, opposition came quick. Jenner was widely ridiculed at his time. Critics, especially clergy and other religious folk, claimed it was repulsive and ungodly to inoculate someone with material from a diseased animal. In fact, nothing characterizes the opposition to Jenner quite like the satirical cartoon that was published in 1802. It's a a room full of people crowded in around Jenner and a few helpers holding buckets full of something labeled cowpox and and, uh, ladles are being pulled out of these buckets as if their vaccine was being administered like some kind of Kool-Aid. But the real catch to the picture is that All these people gathered around Jenner look sickly. And even worse, they are sprouting small cows from all over their body as if this vaccine would actually turn you into a cow or cause your body to start sprouting small cows like plants from all different parts of your body. Here was Jenner trying to say, I found a solution. I found a remedy to this deadly problem that has invaded our society and so stricken children. And the reviews are mixed, to say the least. As we come to this point in the letter to the Hebrews, there's something like this going on. It's been detailed and explained and analyzed for the last several chapters. The remedy The solution to the human condition has been born out of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. A healing has taken place, a cleansing for all people. All of the effects of sin have been dealt with by this new life now offered in Jesus. The question then, and the question which the rest of the letter addresses is, what will you do with that? And even worse, what is left? For people who reject the very thing designed to save them. And there are consequences to this. And the letter to the Hebrews warns against these. And that's why you keep getting these these strong, passionate pleas for people to turn and to fix their eyes on Jesus. Lest they be judged or face judgment. Because judgment is God's dealing with this problem. And so the letter is so insistent that people choose wisely and consider deeply this reality of Jesus for their own sakes so that they will not reject the very thing designed to save them, even though it seems new as it would have for these early believers, even though it doesn't meet with the logic of their day. What could be more absurd than the way this has happened A Savior born in the unlikeliest of places and killed as He was turns out to be the Savior of the world. And yet, as odd as it seems, this new truth has the power to save. And we ought to listen closely as beginning in chapter 10, verse 19, we're implored to live a certain kind of life. And so, Verse 19 sums up what's come before. Therefore, in light of all that we've known already, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great high priest, as we've explored in other passages, over the house of God, let 
us. Verse 22 there begins three different verses, which will begin with that introduction. Let us. And those will be our three points for this sermon, imploring us to a certain kind of living, actions that will help us to respond appropriately to all that Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And so verse 22 says, Therefore, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. How appropriate that having spent so much time explaining who Jesus is and what God has done in Christ, that our first call to action in verse 22 would simply be to draw near. You see, it would have been revolutionary to tell these Hebrews that the curtain has been pulled apart, that the separation between them and God has been removed because of Jesus. The presence of God was reserved for special people at special times on special occasions. Not everyone had access to the presence of God. And that's one of the the revolutionary ideas that we've passed over as we've walked through Hebrews, that access to God the Father has been given through Jesus. And so we can, with boldness and faith and assurance and confidence, draw near. We can experience God. We can have a relationship with the creator of the universe, the one who knit us together in our mother's womb has made himself known to us by revealing himself in Jesus. Looking all the way back to Hebrews 1, the exact imprint, the exact representation of God revealed in Jesus. And we're called to draw near to that. The verse reminds us that that we've been cleansed from a guilty conscience, that we were uh, washed with pure water, reminding these early believers of their baptism, calling us to remember our baptism. And isn't it true that so often in life when our faith is compromised, when we struggle to remain devoted to God, when our actions fail to live up to what we believe, that it's because we've lost connection with the source. We've lost connection with the source of our faith the source of our power, the source of our devotion to God. And when I fail to remain connected to Jesus, I'm so much more susceptible to all that the world has to offer, to the plans of the evil one, to the sin that's so easily entangled. And so it is so important, Hebrews tells us in verse 22, that we draw near because nearness to God is the answer to so many of life's challenges in trouble, in hardship, in persecution, and even in success and victory, I need nearness to God to remind me who I am, to remind me who He's called me to be. Because I receive my identity not from within, but from Him. And so if I can remain near to God through Christ, I can remain near to the life He's called me to to the life he's promised me in eternity, to the hope that guides 
my whole life. So first, let us draw near. And in verse 23, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for we, for he who promised is faithful. It's the third time in this letter that we've been told to hold on. The first was back in chapter 4, verse 14. We're called to hold on, to take hold of this hope, and to do so unswervingly, it says, without wavering, other translations say. And what we're to take hold of is, is the hope that we profess, uh, our confession the acknowledgement of the story of God, the truth and the story of the gospel that this letter's been spelling out, the story of the scriptures that tell us who we are and what God is doing. We're supposed to hold fast to it. We draw near personally in our life by, by developing personal practices of coming near to the presence of the living God because the curtain is open and we can do that anytime and, and anywhere. But we're also to hold fast to grow in my knowledge, in my practice of the gospel, of the story of God that's been taught to us throughout this letter. We're to constantly remind ourselves of the God that we're drawing near to. Because this thing is, is slippery, it's, it's hard to hold on to, and for so many reasons in life, we're pulled away from nearness to God and away from the hope that we profess, and, and we're so inclined to fall from God that the letter implores us to hold fast without wavering to this hope that we profess. And so first, we're to draw near. And second, we are to hold fast. Because the one who promised is faithful. He can be depended on. He can be counted on and trusted. And he has proven that again and again through his covenant through his promises to his people. The late Charles Spurgeon tells it like this, There was a boatman and a coal miner riding together in a boat down a raging river. They were trying to make it through the rapids when they were stuck in a sudden cycle against the rocks of a great raging rapid. It tossed them out of their boat. They realized quickly they were not going to survive this event. At the very moment that the two of them looked at one another and realized they could not make it out of this rapid on their own, a rope landed next to one of them, which he took hold of and was suddenly being pulled to shore by those standing along the shoreline. The other one, in the same moment, reached out and took hold of a log that was floating by. Not realizing that it wasn't the rope, he clung to it firmly, only to drift down the river, never to be seen again. And it turns out that not only must we take hold of something, but we have to take hold of the right things. And the only answer, Hebrews says, is the answer, the remedy given to us in Jesus, the sacrifice which he has made on our behalf, the mending of the gap that has happened in his life and death, the opening of the curtain that he has made possible there's only one thing we can hold to unswervingly and unwaveringly that will lead to life and salvation. And that's the hope of Jesus Christ. And so we're called to take hold of that, to reach for that, because our connection to Jesus is life, is our only hope. And so verse 24 continues 
by saying, Let us consider then how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Spur on is is a word uh, with great strength to it. We urge one another. We ought to be provoking one another, some translations use. It's the same word that we get back in Acts chapter 15 when Paul and Barnabas have this, uh, we'll we'll call it an agreement to disagree. It causes them to part ways. There it's used in the negative, but here it's used in the positive that we ought to, to provoke one another, to spur each other on towards love and good deeds. Because there is no such thing as Lone Ranger Christians, because the hope that we cling to isn't meant to be clung to alone. And so we desire and we long to spur one another on. We need encouragement, provoking of other people, the support of others. That's why chapter 25 says we should not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. The day, of course, being that great day of hope when Jesus will sum up all things, when the new creation will be brought in fullness, when God's kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. And as we await for that day and look toward it, we're called to meet together and to encourage one another. That's why in these strange and and trying days that we find ourselves in now, we've been working hard to find ways to connect with one another, to listen and to worship with one another in ways like this, so that we can spur one another on, so that we can not give up meeting together by whatever means possible. And and certainly, these are challenging days for meeting together, and, and hasn't the absence been felt now more than ever. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with folks in our church who have longed for the gathering of God's people. Not necessarily in a specific place or in a specific way, but just to be with others in the body of Christ, to be with their family of faith in worship and in Bible study. And part of that is because we realize and we know that we need one another. Now, we can't do this alone. We don't want to do this alone, that we were created for community. And so we're implored to draw near to God. And how do we draw near to God? By holding unswervingly to this hope that he's given us. And how? How can we possibly hold without wavering onto this hope? We'll do it together. By gathering together, by spurring one another on, by encouraging each other towards the love of God and the good deeds that he's called us to. Even this morning, I preached from Joshua chapter 4, that passage about the Israelites having crossed the Jordan when they set up markers to remind themselves and to remind future generations of what the Lord has done, that the hand of the Lord is mighty and has rescued us. And we need one another. We need other people. We need the body to remind us again and again, even as we remind ourselves, that we have this hope in Jesus. Edward Jenner's thesis, his treatise, was published in 1801. It was called On the Origin of the Vaccine Inoculation. In it, he summarized his discoveries, expressed hope that the, quote, the annihilation of the smallpox, the most dreadful scourge of the human species, 
must be the final result of this practice. That was in 1801. The last outbreak of smallpox in the United States, as best I can tell, was in 1949. It was in 1980 that the World Health Organization declared smallpox disease to be fully and completely eradicated. Jenner's hope that smallpox will be annihilated in 1801 is announced in 1980. What's left for people who reject the very thing designed to save them? That's what Hebrews is asking as it continues in chapter 10, verse 26. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Wow. I mean, these are, these are deep and powerful words, scary words. In fact, many would rather not preach them or hear them, but the reality is that there is destruction waiting for those who reject the very thing designed to save them. And the whole letter to the Hebrews up to this point has been trying to help these early believers understand that the person and work of Jesus is the very thing designed to save them. And if they are confused or distressed or dismayed or tempted to go back to the way things were before, they'd better look closer Pay much better attention to what has happened here. Because to reject the very thing designed to save them is to welcome destruction forever. To reject nearness to God today is to reject nearness of God for eternity. If I choose to shut the door on Jesus, to let go of the rope to which I cling, I have chosen separation from God. And this is not necessary, says the letter to the Hebrews, because we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Those who were once far off need to be far off no longer. And that's why these passages of judgment and warning can seem so striking and dangerous and oppressive, but in reality they are attempting to point us to what is the greatest hope and freedom the world has ever known and has ever seen. And so skipping down to verse 32, the writer to Hebrews wants to implore them, remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your own property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. And so if you've gotten the misconception somewhere along the way that by holding fast and drawing near and spurring one another on toward love and good deeds, life would become simple and quaint and easy. Certainly you don't make it to the end of this chapter before being corrected. These earliest Christians had suffered great persecution, great hardships and trials, 
Sometimes they were insulted publicly. Sometimes they stood alongside their friends who were insulted publicly. They suffered with those in prison. They even joyfully accepted the reality that persecution might even take their very possessions. The confiscation, it says, of their property in light of this belief and hope in Jesus. And there are maybe more questions than answers in this passage about what exactly that persecution was and and how it is they came to face it. And were they getting caught up in one of the waves of Roman persecution that ripped through the early church? Or was this a local chain of events that the preacher is now addressing, something that happened more on a neighborhood level? We don't really know. But what we do know, says Tom Long, is that the congregation responded to this earlier crisis in two ways, with compassion and with joy. The imprisonment of others became not an occasion for despair, but for the formation of a prison ministry. The loss of possession didn't prompt them to cry, we lost everything, but instead to say, we possess a treasure the world cannot take. In other words, the congregation sang songs not of sadness, but of triumph, hymns of praise, because they knew that God's kingdom is forever. As the old hymn goes, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. Notice, how after encouraging them in these three ways to draw near, to hold fast, and to spur one another on, now before the chapter's over, this preacher is reframing what persecution even means. What may seem to the world like public humiliation and abuse and mistreatment turns out to be an act of worship, an act of obedience. And so you need to persevere, he says in verse 36, so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised for in just a little while. He who is coming will come and will not delay. And, but my righteous one will live by faith. And I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. And friends, these are days of challenges. And this preacher knows his congregation is tired and discouraged and and plagued with injuries as we might be. And the danger is that they're going to lose perspective and forget who they are and where they are and the nature of Jesus. They may just lose sight of the goal and simply quit and give up fearing that the race that they're running has no end. But this preacher wants them to see and to hold before them that they are running the greatest race of all. And the end of the race is near and the prize is a promised inheritance, a hope given to them by Jesus. And so the writer of the Hebrews knows his congregation. He's confident in their training and in their dedication. And this chapter concludes by this admonition that we hear and we take for ourselves as well. We do not belong, verse 39, we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. And so we commit ourselves and devote ourselves to living this life of faith, to running the race with our eyes fixed on Jesus, holding out this hope before us. And we're going to do that together by drawing near to Jesus, by holding fast to the hope that we profess, and by considering 
how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let that be our story together. In Jesus' name, join me as we pray. God, we are so grateful that you do all things for your glory and for our good. And so we make this our aim that we might be people of God who keep our eyes fixed on God. We pray that nearness to you would be a priority in our lives, even when it seems uncomfortable or inconvenient or a challenge for us. God, we ask that you would be with those who have yet to receive and to believe in the name of Jesus and his power to save. For those who have rejected the very thing designed to save them, Father, we hold them up to you. We pray that you would make us witnesses, people whose love and good deeds make known the salvation available to the world in Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.